and sometimes why. Why? Welcome, people, podcastees, citizens. Thank you so much for your ears. I'm Rob Zabo, and this is And Sometimes Why. This is a podcast where we get into it. We dig into ideas, and today's episode is no different. I've got someone on this episode who I'm going to have a conversation with who I've been training with having these kinds of conversations for my entire life. Well, okay, maybe not my entire life, but at least since I was four years old. Yes, I'm interviewing my sister, Dr. Michelle Zabo. She's not a medical doctor, by the way. She's a prof, and she's an expert in sociology and environmental studies. I'll give her her full introduction when we're actually sitting together. So you got to understand this about my family. When we get together, one thing that's sure to happen and that's some sort of intense conversation where we get right into an idea and basically drill to the center of the earth to try and understand it or make ourselves understood to each other. Maybe every family does this. I don't know. I only grew up once, but uh, this is the family I knew and I know. So suffice it to say that this kind of conversation comes very naturally to my sister and I. So buckle up. Here's me talking with my sister, Dr. Michelle Zabo. Thanks so much for coming here, Dr. Michelle Zabo. It's, it's my pleasure. It's funny to hear you call me that. Yeah. So I want to give you a proper introduction. So I'm going to read this. You have your PhD in environmental studies from York University, and you're a postdoctoral fellow in sociology at the University of Toronto. I was. You were. I was. So that's a temporary thing. Yes. A fellow. I don't, I don't see you as a fellow. <laughs> yeah. Sounds like a dude. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that was a two-year thing. Okay. I was that. Now I'm not. All right. So you teach now at Sheridan College in Oakville. That's right. So what do you teach? I teach mostly sociology, some environmental studies, gender studies. Yeah. And so you came into Sheridan right at the time when, and I guess it's a transition. Mm -hmm. It's a bit complicated and there are bumps in that road. But uh, yeah, Sheridan right now is kind of a hybrid institution. It offers mostly degrees, which are full-fledged undergraduate degrees that are the same as a university degree, and uh, also diplomas, which are traditionally what colleges offer. So I teach both university-level classes, undergraduate classes, and college-level classes at Sheridan. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is something that you've been It's a personal interest. It also dovetails with your academic interests. Mm -hmm. It's something called authentic relating. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed a really profound personal change in you. And so I really wanted to dig into this because it's so new to me. But in the little bit we've talked about it, I, I feel like it's such a positive thing for the world that a group of people would undertake this kind of mammoth kind of I feel like I need you to help me Mm -hmm. express what it even is. Because in my mind, like, what is it? Is it a framework for communication? Is it a movement? How would you describe it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it because you're right. It has really changed my life and in so many beautiful, profound ways. So I could talk about it forever, but to, to try to make it a bit brief... Authentic relating is both, uh, in my mind, a communication framework. So um, it offers some offerings in terms of how to structure communication and um, has some principles and there are skills that people learn. Right. And it's also a movement. So there are authentic relating communities in big cities around North America and Europe Um, and other parts of the world. And in these communities, people get together and practice authentic relating. And um, there are workshops and and there are get-togethers and there are events. And so in Toronto, there are events um, at least once a week. 
Mm-hmm. And um, and so people get together and discover and learn and learn the skills of these communication frameworks and explore and participate and to the point where I've been doing it for five, six years now. And so it's to the point where that has become sort of part of my regular way of communicating, actually. Right. And, and the underlying motivation in this movement what would you say that is like like hearing you say what you're saying it it seems to me like this is a group of people worldwide who have decided that we need as humans to change the way that we communicate with each other hmm that's interesting to think about it that way i think yes some people i've met a lot of people who are very excited about the idea of bringing more authentic relating into the mainstream to uh, offer something that we don't typically generally have or skills that communication skills that we don't learn elsewhere. And right. so, yeah, people are really, some people are really excited about that for right. sure. Right. The, the feeling is just that what we're doing right now as a species communicating is just not working. And cl- I mean, it seems clear that all, it, it, look at politics, look at the yeah. way everything is so polarized. Polarization right? yeah. and uh, vitriolic, conflict ridden communication. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, some, I guess I'm hesitating a little bit to make sweeping claims about it because what I've seen is that some people. some people claim that it's for everyone, and other people like me are a bit more hesitant. And say it seems to appeal to certain groups more than others. Right. Yeah. So, okay. So can you give me sort of a breakdown of you said principles? Mm-hmm. So there are different principles. They they differ slightly depending on which part of the world you're in and which community you're in, and each community seems to have slight variations. But I think there's some main underlying similarities. So there's no oversight. This is just a movement that has no no leader or direction or kind of edicts from up on high. It's it's grassroots. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. It it developed in a really grassroots way and sort of started to emerge in different parts of the world and people traveling and taking different parts and so right, there is no main oversight top down telling people what to do but it's more down bottom up emerging and people exchanging ideas organically that works for me yeah so i would say one of the main ideas of authentic relating that all of the flavors of it that i've encountered share is this idea of focusing on the present moment and so maybe i'll use uh I'll use an explanation that I've heard before from Authentic Relating International, which is a organization in Colorado that teaches Authentic Relating, or Authentic Relating Training, actually, is what they're called, and their offshoot, Authentic Relating International, is a nonprofit that I, I can talk about later. But um, the way that they frame Authentic Relating one way to think about it is there are three levels of conversation. Okay. And so the first level is informational. We might think of it as informational. So typical small talk would be in this level. So it's just exchanging facts, basically. Like I went to this concert last night or what I do for a living. Right. And we as a family typically (laughs) – disdain that kind of conversation. (laughs) We're genetically programmed to have a problem with it somehow. So I I can see that. Okay, so that's one level. Yeah, so that's one level. Um, And it's funny that you say disdain. Yeah, I I personally have a really hard time with small talk. Um, And I think that's one of the reasons I'm really attracted to authentic relating is because generally it's not the conversation is not at that level. Okay, so the next level. The next level is personal. And so this is where you're getting a little bit more deeply into what people care about. So people's feelings about things or what matters to them, what they care about. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so what I'm doing right now is talking about authentic relating, something that I care about. We might call this the personal level of relating. And then the third level is the relational level. And that's where a lot of authentic relating 
focus is. Okay. So the relational level is what I was referring to before. It's like the present moment, what's it like for each of us or all of us in a in an interaction to be here with each other right. in this moment, right. in this place. So that is rare in, you know, a business transaction or you, you picture two dudes in suits trying to get a deal done and like so so how do you feel now in this moment? Are yeah. you are you are you nervous? <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. know, that asking each other these kind of questions. Yeah. So is it is it is that what it is? Yeah, so like we can do it right now. I Do you I want can, to? Yeah. It's, it's, it sounds risky to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, one of the things that we talk about in authentic relating is there's a there's a quality of aliveness to it because okay. it's it's already here. It's what is already here. And okay. so so yeah, what's it like for you, Rob, to have your sister on your podcast? We're here talking to each other about authentic relating. How do you feel about that? Or what, what comes How up for you? How do I feel about it? Well, yeah. what comes up for me, the the narrative that I have in my head ongoing as that the whole thing is is happening is why are we recording this? We have these kinds of discussions <laughs> every time we see each other. Um, we've been, you know, having these discussions about ideas in our family since we were kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, now we're recording and it's sort of formalized. Mm-hmm. And why are we doing that? But is that, am I right? Is this the kind of thing that authentic relating, is that too intellectual? Or is that, uh, am I supposed to talk about how I feel because that, that really is the kind of loop that I have going on in my head. It sounds like you're thinking about, like, what we've been doing this before. You're sort of framing it in the context of our family dynamics and mm-hmm. things. So I can demonstrate a bit. So Okay, so I, I did it wrong. Damn well, it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I would say there's, there's a wrong, but... Um, okay, you show me. me. Yeah, for me, I would say... Um, like I feel into my body and see what kind of sensations or feelings are coming up. Like I'm, I'm a bit nervous to be talking publicly. I'm always a little bit nervous really? to be on a microphone. Yeah. To your brother? Yeah. Well, because we're, this will go out publicly. So, right, right. Okay. Um, I get that. Yeah. So I feel a little bit of nerves, you know, my hands are a bit cold and I have a, a few butterflies. Okay. Um, and then, but also I'm really excited, like that we, it's really gratifying and touching to me that you're interested in these things that I'm interested in. Oh, you, shit, now feelings. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> that you, that, that you asked me to be on your podcast, like I'm really touched and, and flattered and it's super exciting for me to talk about things that I'm, that I'm really interested in and share them with the world. So I feel a lot of joy in the moment too. Okay, yeah. that, that's a really good example. That's a good uh, demonstration. Mm-hmm, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> good, good job, Michelle. Good job, doctor. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, I think one of the reasons I like that so much is, for me, there's something about hearing what's going on for people in the very moment that we're sitting together that helps me relax. Like there's there's this feeling for me of like a veil being taken off. Right. There's so much of what people say is not actually what they mean and that's that's part of I'm not criticizing individuals but that's part of our social learning and our environment that there's a lot of irony there's a lot of um just kind of posturing to kind of get some sort of leg up it's not always adversarial but just the idea that you want to present yourself in a certain way usually yeah there's this idea these are the social conventions of how we talk, hey, how are you? I'm fine. And right. so people are often not really saying how they feel. They're not actually, they're using words that aren't reflecting necessarily. They might be angry and pretending to smile. Right. And so I, when I hear how people are actually doing, and especially if I'm trying to have a, a conversation about a difficult topic with a, an intimate partner or a family member, I I can immediately relax because I feel like that veil is taken off and I I get a sense of like, oh, yeah, now, okay, we're being real. Like we're fucking just, we're getting to it. Right. Yeah, yeah, that's so important. I mean, I've had that kind of feeling and we've talked about this throughout our lives. Just regular conversation, depending on who you're with, can be so superficial. Uh And it really feels like, 
that always bums me out so much. And you, <laughs> I just, I'm the guy at the party always. I mean, this is the reason I started this podcast, right? Is just to be able to have real conversations with people. Because often, let's say you're at a social gathering, a party, whatever it is. And I'm the guy who typically corners one person who I, I find interesting mm-hmm. and won't let them get out until we, we, we get to this point. So I mm-hmm. guess I'm doing authentic relating without realizing it in some way. You might be, yeah. Right. You might be. So are there, there other kind of principles or approaches that are core tenets of the, the philosophy or the approach? Mm-hmm. Here's where things differ depending on which city you're in a little bit and who's teaching the principles. But uh, one of the main ones that seems to overlap is the idea of honoring oneself and other, honoring your own feelings, your own desires, your own thoughts in the moment, as well as trying to honor the other people's feelings, thoughts, desires in the moment. Mm -hmm. So that might be really, just to give one simple example before I list the other things, that might be very simply to check in to oneself. If someone asks you a question that you really don't want to answer, that feels too too personal, like you, I don't know, let's say you're at a party to go back to the party example, and someone is asking a question, our social conditioning is to answer questions that were asked. And authentic relating would encourage us to hear that question, like feel into whether we really want to answer it. Does that feel like it's violating some kind of personal boundary? Do I want to answer it? And instead of just automatically answering it, saying, if I feel into it and go, oh, that, that feels a bit too personal to say to the other person, oh, I don't think I, I'm in a place where I want to answer that question right now. Or hmm. It's an interesting balance. Because on the one hand, you want to be super real and you want to tell people how you're feeling in mm. the moment. But on the other hand, you want to keep your boundaries. Right, right. So I'm glad you brought that up because there might it might seem to be that there's a conflict between those two. So the authenticity in authentic relating, the authentic part... I've heard people in the movement talk about it as distinguishing it from radical honesty. So it's not that you're going around, like, just dumping all of your feelings on people all the the time. Kind of the oversharing thing. Yeah, yeah. It's not radical honesty around oversharing, like breaking your own boundaries, and it's not breaking other people's boundaries either. So you're not... You're thinking about the impact that what you share has on others as well. So that's the honor self, honor other. So if I – I might feel really angry and want to punch you in the face. But – so it's not just radical doing whatever you want and and screaming at you and punching you in the face. It's going, okay, I might say, huh, I I notice I feel really angry and I feel like I want to punch you in the face. So the the authentic relating would would encourage you to say that. It depends on the context. So – in a specific context, I think the invitation would be to check in. Like, is that something you really feel like revealing in this moment? Do you think that serves the the context that you're in? So again, it's checking into yourself always first, going back to yourself and going, do you think this is a useful thing to say in this moment? Mm-hmm. Will it serve the relationship between you and the other person? Right. It, there are maybe contexts where it does. Right. Yeah. And. What that makes me go to hearing you say that is the underlying motivation for all of this. And I wonder whether you guys explicitly talk about that. Because I think, okay, there are these principles. We're learning them and we're trying to embody them and enact them. But what's the underlying goal? Is it to decrease suffering in communication between human beings? Mm, That's a good question. So I think that would differ depending on who you ask. The underlying goal, I think, for me is to, there seems to be a few, like to have increased intimacy and connection. Right. So there's a sense of if we're hiding our authentic selves, we, we can't have intimacy or connection with others because we're not letting ourselves to meet where we truly are. We're, we're not letting ourselves meet. We're not... We're posturing. We're right. we're not revealing. We're not being seen for who we really are. We're we're covering up who we really and are. So nobody wins. Yeah. So for me, a big part of it is this idea of being seen and seeing other people for who they really are and letting go of 
the masks that we learn through mm-hmm. our socialization. Right. That really resonates for me. I can, I can totally relate to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So are there other, have we covered the principles? Now, so that was there? one. Okay. was honoring oneself and, and other. Mm-hmm. So I just want to make it clear about the last example. So I don't think there are many situations where someone would encourage the other person to punch them in the face. It, or even to say, I feel like punching yeah, you in the, the face. Unless it's... It's a goofy example. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, I just want to make that clear. Okay. But, um, so... Another tenet would be to own your experience. It's called own your experience. So owning one's experience has been so transformational for me, has really, really changed my relationship with my feelings and with other people. Hmm. Owning your experience is the idea of recognizing your feelings and realizing that your feelings are not planted there by others. So if, for example, you say something to me and I feel angry after hearing you say it. Okay. In our culture, we tend to say, that makes me really angry, what you just said. You made me really angry. Or that makes me really sad or whatever it is. And authentic relating says that, or the owning your experience part of it, is the idea of recognizing that I have a whole history behind the interaction that I'm currently having with someone. Mm-hmm. And okay. so this anger could be and is for sure related in many ways to all of the previous experiences I've had in my life. So it's like I feel angry. It's not because you said that thing. It's partly related to what you said. But the large majority of where that anger comes from is my history with other people perhaps saying similar things to me. Right, right, right. And so... I think so many people could be so well served by that little concept. uh Uh-huh. Yeah. It's so empowering, this idea for me. The way I first learned this was to stop using the word make in relation to feelings. Like, that makes me angry or that makes me sad. But saying instead... When you say that, I feel Right, right. And so you own your own experience, like you were saying, and you kind of take responsibility for your, whatever you're bringing to, whatever you're bringing to the situation. Uh No one can make you, ah. Yeah. I'm not getting there. You're, no, I think you're really, you're really getting to it. No one can make you angry. No one can make you sad. They're not putting feelings in your body. Those feelings are arising in your body for all kinds of complex reasons. Right. So on the one hand, you're you're taking responsibility for that. But on the other hand, I mean, if you're with some other person, they have to take some responsibility as well, of course. Mm -hmm. So it's it's quite complex. But yeah, yeah, the other person is also ideally in authentic relating principles taking responsibility for their own feelings Mm -hmm. and their own experience. And so the, the idea of experience is like your sensory experience and your, your feelings experience and your thoughts. Mm-hmm. And so you're, in other words, not blaming the other people in your life for how you feel. Yeah, that's, that's important. <laughs> yeah. As, as we get older, right? To kind of yeah. almost everyone, hopefully, a- after a certain age, just that's a really big growing concept. Yeah. Uh, certainly in my life. It's really, really changed, like I said, earlier really changed my concept of what it's like to be even in relationships with people and like to realize, oh, I feel really sad when that person does this thing. Like, what is it about my own past or what is it about this thing rather than this person? Mm -hmm. And how can I, you know, talk about it with them instead of blaming them for it? Totally. That makes all the sense in the world to me. So are there other principles that you want to talk about? There are a few more. I'll just say one more for the sake of keeping it brief. Um, The idea of not assuming, not assuming how others are feeling or what others are thinking or how others feel about us. So in authentic relating, there's the idea of really checking in with others and explicitly, um, explicitly communicating, in. asking mm-hmm. for how they're feeling. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So we have this idea of story. Like, so I might have an interaction with someone. Let's say it's you. I have an interaction with you. Let's say it's short. Let's say we're talking on the phone and you get off the phone quickly with me. And I take away from that that somehow seems like you are mad at me. Right. And so I might assume that you're mad and then I might operate the next time I see you. I might operate under the assumption that you were mad at me and I might feel uncomfortable and weird about it. But really, I just had to like run to the washroom or something or whatever. Yeah. Or you were having a bad day, something that had nothing to do with me. And so in authentic relating, it's encouraged or we learn how to bring that up and say like, hey, Rob, last time we talked – we got off the phone quickly. Like I make an observation of what the thing was that brought up the feeling. And like we got off the phone quickly, some kind of objective observation. And then say, I created this story that you were mad at me or I have this story right, that you're right. mad at me. And then so then here's the assume nothing part is that is that right? So I'm checking in with you. Were you mad at me or are right. you still mad at me? Um, and then then we can talk about it and we can dispel so many wrong assumptions or like start to have a necessary maybe conversation about an assumption that was right. Right. All of this sounds very healthy. Very healthy. (laughs) All of these rules seem to be just kind of common sense, like golden rule things Uh that if, if people were just mindful of, everything would go better. It sounds like such a positive, positive framework. Mm, Thanks. Thanks. I think people often have the idea that they want to, but there are sometimes subtle changes in the language that we use. Like just to say, I think in our culture, normally people would say in that same scenario, the next time I see you after I thought you were angry, well, they might not want to bring it up. They might think, oh, it's just a story, so I don't want to bring it up. That would sound stupid, or it's too vulnerable to mention that I made up the story that I think you're angry at me. Everyone does it. Yeah. Or it could be, so it could be that people don't bring it up, but it could also be the language, like just saying outright, why are you mad at me? Right. And then that would tend to trigger defensiveness on the other person. I'm not mad at you. Right. So there is a a kind of a protocol for how you express the check-in. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So you're checking in as opposed to saying, why are you mad at me? I'm imposing the mad onto you. How would you say it? So like what I said before, you got off the phone quickly and I have a story that you're mad at me. Is that right? Right. So that's really different than saying, why are you mad at me? Oh, totally. Yeah. So I guess my point in saying all this is that I think that in our culture, we try to have these conversations often, but they sometimes go off the rails for small nuances in the language that people right. use. Right. People yeah. don't have the tools. It's all about communication. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. That makes so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So can we jump? Well, I guess we're not. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm still working on this podcast thing, so I don't have the transitions down. So I'm feeling nervous in this moment. Because I want to do a good job in transitioning. How do you feel about feeling that I'm nervous when I'm supposed to know what I'm doing here? Does that feel okay for you? Does it make you nervous? I feel really excited that you're now doing the thing that we talked about and using authentic relating. I feel a lot of joy and excitement in this moment. You're going to have to coach me, sis. You're doing this incredible, I don't even know what, study is not the right word, but you're taking authentic relating into prisons. Mm -hmm. You went to a prison in Colorado, Mm -hmm. and this is in the introduction I was saying, it's a personal interest, but it also dovetails with your academic studies and your work as a prof. And so you went to this prison in Colorado and you had this experience and you're now thinking about bringing authentic relating to Ontario prisons Mm -hmm. as well. So can you talk a little bit about this? Because this is so interesting to me. Clearly you can hear me getting excited. Thanks, Rob, for asking. It's, yeah, I'd love to talk about it. And yeah, I'm really touched again that you're so interested. It's so meaningful to me. It's one of the most meaningful things I feel like I've ever done. 
So I learned through Facebook, actually, about this organization in Colorado, an authentic relating organization, actually, that I mentioned earlier, uh, called Authentic Relating International. I saw on Facebook that they started doing this prison work. So they started bringing a two-day authentic relating workshop into Colorado prisons and jails. Right. So I got really excited about that and just contacted them. And a lot of different things had to happen in the interim. But what ended up happening was that me and three friends here from Authentic Relating Toronto Uh, The four of us went to Boulder and some other parts of Colorado over the summer in July, just this past July, to participate in their two-day prison workshop and help lead it because we're we're all trained authentic relators here. Right. Yeah. So we were part of this workshop in a prison in Rifle, Colorado, the Rifle Correctional Center, (laughs) in the middle of the desert. so USA. (laughs) Rifle. Rifle, yeah. The city is called Rifle. Can you imagine? And in this, just as a funny aside, I forget if I told you this, but in Rifle, there's a famous diner where the the waitresses pack guns in open holsters. They have loaded guns? They have loaded guns. I don't know if they're loaded. I think they're loaded. Yeah, I'm pretty sure they're loaded. But apparently, like, this part of Colorado is a... They have a proud history of gun ownership, and it's part of the aye, West. Aye, aye. So we went to this diner just as, like I said, as an aside. But yeah, that's um, it's like the middle of nowhere, very different than Boulder, right? Right. And Denver, yeah. Wow, that's that's bananas. Wow. <laughs> so I had the absolute privilege to be in this prison for two days with um, with the guys. Um, so it was all male? All male men. Okay. Yeah, incarcerated. The people incarcerated were all men, a men's prison. Okay. And so I took part in these authentic relating activities. How did the prisoners decide to be part of it? Like, did they have a choice or was yes, it man- absolutely. mandated? Yeah. So I forget how many people are in this prison. I think probably 300, 200 men. Okay. And there were, I believe, 20 of them in the workshop. And so there are several programs that are offered from the outside. There's things like AA that come in. Right, right. So these and guys so decided they, they wanted just to be decided. part of this. There, was, um, wow. there were flyers that were put up, and the correctional officer let some of them know. And so they were volunteers, people who had seen the flyer, had heard about it from the right. staff there and said, oh, this sounds like something I'd like to be involved in and like to learn and be part of. Wow, that that's good. <laughs> the yeah. reason I say that's good is just because, like, when you told me about this initially, the first thing I went to was, what business do a bunch of, you know, middle-class yeah. academics have going into a prison in another country and bringing their ideas in? Yeah. Who asked you? Right. Right? Yeah. So, obviously, you thought of that, and you all thought of that. What's the demographics of the prison in terms of the inmates? Is it overwhelmingly African-American? The mm-hmm. reason I say that is just because the whole U.S. prison system, as I understand it, is way overweighted yeah. with Hispanic background people and African-Americans yeah. compared to the regular population. That's that the whole prison industrial system works that way. Right, right. So, was that the case in Rifle in Colorado? Yeah, so I don't know the demographics of the rifle prison as a whole, but that's true. I know from my sociological research and work that absolutely the prison system in Canada and in the States is overwhelmingly, disproportionately people of color and Aboriginal people way more than they should be represented based on their percentage of the population. Of the population. So it's basically you're in prison because you're black or native or Hispanic instead of because you're white. Mm, uh, I know it's funny to take it to that length, but I mean, the system's set up for that to some degree, right? And it's for profit. Yeah. In the States, there's for-profit prisons for sure. I'm not sure if this one was a for-profit prison. Right. But, um, yeah, though, absolutely. Uh, And we could talk about that for a long time. Well, that's a whole other thing. But the reason I bring it up, like, practically for your situation is I imagine being someone who's not a white person. And here comes, was it women or, uh, like, your group? 
Yeah. So it was mainly, there were six of us in total, four from Toronto and two from Colorado, and five women and one man, and all white, middle so class. So all white, yeah. middle class academics, mostly Not women. academics, but yeah. Me. Coming in to this prison yes. where it's mostly non-white people. And they'd be thinking, like, if I were one of them, I'd be thinking, like, who the, who the fuck asked you to come here? What are you yeah. doing here? Get out. Yeah. yeah. That's something that I thought about right away and that I was worried about. And that's a concern as someone who studies sociology, as someone who teaches sociology, that was definitely a concern of mine. And it's still a concern of mine. I don't want to be seen and I don't want to make the mistakes of imposing my own ideas of what is good onto other people from a, a like a paternalistic kind of standpoint. And I've done a lot of research on this and have taken anti-racist, anti-oppression workshops and I'm right. like really doing and I feel nervous talking about this cuz I right. I'm I'm worried about fucking it up, really. Right, right. But, so, but it obviously mattered enough to you that you wanted to go and share this, what had really improved your life. Yeah, yeah. So the compulsion to do that or the motivation is an honest giving one, as far as I can see. Yeah, certainly knowing thank you. you. Thank you, yeah. So it's a it's a balance for me because I am I am worried about fucking it up and I'm I'm worried about being perceived as a do-gooding middle class white person imposing right. my views on other people. And so yes, I'm very aware of that and concerned about it and yeah, want to so, do my best to mitigate that. So to yeah. be clear, I wasn't giving you shit for that. I was just yeah. sort of bringing it up because we've been talking about authentic relating and it, it yeah. came into my mind, but also it it just seemed like an obvious potential problem. Yeah. Certainly that'd be the first thing I would think of walking into a prison. Yeah. Not so much that we're not of the same ethnic background necessarily, but just that I might not have any business there because what do I necessarily have to offer if I haven't been invited? Mm-hmm. So how did it turn out? Yes. Yeah, so. what, what actually <laughs> happened? I, I'm just talking about, was this a problem? Was that a problem? Yeah. Here's another problem. <laughs> Well, it's very it's very familiar to me as an academic and as someone in our family. I think right. we tend to think that way. Look look at all the potential ways where we might be imposing on other people. Right. But yeah, I'm very and continue to be aware of that and continue to want to mitigate that. So That's good to know. So you went in. Yeah, so we went and in. And how did it go? So, it was such an incredible moving experience for me. Um, I remember the f- very first moment of setting foot in the prison. I mean, first of all, there's all kinds of rules about what you can bring in. Like, you can't bring phones in. There's all kinds of restrictions on what the women can wear in a men's right. prison. Yeah, you, you'd imagine that, right? Yeah. And then, they don't I, want to start a riot. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's just natural animal instinct, right? Yeah. There's, again, we could have a whole conversation about that. Um And I was so nervous going in, super nervous. Like, what are these guys going to think of me? This little white girl from Canada, what the fuck does she know? Right. So nervous. But as soon as they started coming in, I started to feel myself relax. They came in the room. A lot of them introduced themselves one by one and shook our hands. So right away, they initiated. So you're all in like kind of a meeting room. There's Five of you? Six of us from the outside. Yeah, and how many? And about 20. Right. Yeah. And then they came in one by one, and there's a staff member, a correctional officer also, who had to be in the room at all times, because there's a lot of um, surveillance. Sure. And so they came in one by one, Uh and some of them introduced themselves and shook our hands, which right away was so grateful for, like, oh, okay. Okay, okay, we're all oh, we're, good. we're, we're all, all humans. just people. It's <laughs> yeah. just no big deal, even though we come from kind of different worlds. You know, yeah. you're in prison, I'm not. Yeah. And then we had an, an opening circle, which from the beginning was extremely touching to me. The leader of our group introduced what we were there for and what authentic relating is. And then as we typically do in an authentic relating event... We went around the room and shared our names, and then each person shared where they were at. So, in other words, like feelings, thoughts, sensations. Like we were talking about earlier. Right. Yeah. And they did they pick up on that and right they away? Were, they were into it? They were into it. I mean, we the six of us went first, so I think that set a context where— 
we all kind of made ourselves vulnerable by sharing right. our own feelings. But and you can see why I asked. Because, yeah. you know, the stereotype of a toughened inmate totally. would be like that. That's the last thing you would hear them say, yeah. right? Yeah, of course. And for very good reason. Like, they're in danger. Well, yeah, they got to protect themselves. Yeah. It's survival, right? Survival. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I was so taken aback from the very start where the six of us opened up, shared why we were there and our names. And then a lot of them shared very similar things. Like, I feel really nervous. I don't know what this is about. So again, like I mentioned earlier, I started to relax as soon as I heard where they were at, them sharing their feelings, feeling, you know, like, okay, we're all humans here with feelings. All right. So that's authentic relating at yeah. work. That's what it's supposed to do. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, so that was just to give a little bit of a sense of what the room was like and what we were doing. And then from there, for the next two days, we were engaged in small group guided authentic relating activities where me and the other people from Toronto and the other leaders from Colorado were interspersed among the guys. Like broken off into groups broken kind of off like into one groups. of you with a couple, with two or two three, or three in, inmates. Or just one. Right. Sometimes it was one-on-one. One-on-one. That'd be intense. It eh? was so great. It was so beautiful. <laughs> can, what, can such you, a learning experience. Like, Do you remember any particular interactions or conversations that you had one-on-one with an inmate? That just seems to me right away, I got think, face-to-face. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like, I, what, what I'm imagining is, wow, what, what actually happened? Yeah, there's so many beautiful memories I have. One of the first things we did, I think, was pretty intense. I was face-to-face with a guy who mm-hmm. I, I remember with fondness. We were, I forget exactly what the activity was, but we were asked to maybe, I, th- I know, it was just an eye contact activity. So this is often part of an authentic relating activity. Right. Yeah, I've heard it's about just, this. Just stand face-to-face with your partner, whatever distance you want to stand from them that feels comfortable, but where you can see their eyes. And just just look into their eyes for 30 seconds. And this <laughs> <That's> guy, <intense. laughs> yeah, I, I think if I were to do it differently, I might have that a bit later in the day or on the second day. Because this guy- This is just, one of the earlier- It was an earlier one. And he started to shake. And he was, he was shake. His hands were shaking. But he was, it seemed, he seemed very friendly to me. So he was shaking and he's like, oh, this is hard. This is hard. He was saying that <laughs> yeah, as it was happening. Something like that. I don't remember <sighs> the words. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. And so I remember the feeling that I had was just a lot of, um, I felt really endeared to him. So it wasn't it wasn't uh, confrontational. He didn't seem like he wanted to stop doing it. He didn't seem like he was judging the activity. He just, he seemed welcoming of trying it as an experiment. And I just remember feeling a lot of endearing feelings toward him in that moment. Like, this must be really intense for him. That takes courage to just look into someone's eyes as a stranger, period. Yeah. Let alone all the other factors at play on that day, right? Right. Like a woman. They haven't seen women in a while, probably. Yeah, like there's just, just, you could list them down. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. They may, you know, not a lot of people, especially if they're, you know, in conflict with the law, probably don't make a lot of intense eye contact or haven't had the chance. And Yeah, so wow. Are there any other interactions that come to mind? There is also, we have some hand gestures in authentic relating. One of them is this. So I'm moving my fingers. Some people call it like jazz hands or twiddle fingers. It's more like you're playing piano on an invisible piano. Yeah. So this means me too. So if someone's describing a feeling or an experience or a thought, Instead of interrupting them verbally, I can make this gesture with my hands. And if I'm in a big group, many people can make that gesture with their hands. And then you can see how many other people resonate with what one person is saying. And so you see this often with twiddle (laughs) fingers. That's a great idea. Yeah. And so it's like bringing it back to the prison the leaders in Colorado said they didn't teach this hand gesture to previous guys that they had been with in the prisons because they thought it would seem too feminine somehow to the guys. Right. Like that it's, if you can picture like jazz hands or whatever, it's not, it's not jazz hands. Like you said, it's more like playing the piano. Piano hands. 
um, but somehow the twiddliness of it is they were afraid it wouldn't seem masculine or the guys wouldn't like it. Right. But the reason I bring that up is because it was so impactful to me, so meaningful to me that I didn't know that about the facilitators, that they had purposely not introduced it. And so at the very beginning of our check-ins at the prison, somebody says something that I resonated with. So I did the gesture, and then I explained later that that's what it meant. Right. And then for the whole rest of the two days, the guys were doing it left, right, and center, this gesture. Oh, shit. I would not have guessed that. Yeah. So that just goes to show you that I have these preconceived notions yeah. about what incarcerated men are like. Yeah, they were doing it left, right, and center. And it was so, like, such a delight somehow that there's this, I can remember the look on their face, some of them, on their faces, this, like, this childish like, me too, me too, I feel that too. Right, it's, and this is some dude who's in prison for who knows what, right? And then you have whatever preconceived notion about yeah. what he's like and what his life's like. Yeah. And he's saying, hey, I can really relate to you. So that's pretty powerful, right? Yeah, yeah, super powerful. So I have so many memories of seeing a lot of guys making that that gesture. Yeah, I just feel delighted thinking back to that, you know, guys who were gang members, and it's such a beautiful, humanizing thing. Yeah. Are there any other things that illustrate the authentic relating and, and how that played into the, the back and forth between you and the inmates? Mm-hmm. Um, I had a really sweet interaction with a guy. We were doing an activity called the Empathy Game, even though it's not really a game. It's called that. And... Um, this is where we just share, we take turns sharing something we really care about with the other person. And then the other person will go through a process of first just reflecting back what they hear to make sure they're getting it right. without comment. Yeah. And then they'll share what we call impact. So like, what was it like for you to sit there and listen to me talk about something that's really meaningful right. to me? And so... When uh, I was sharing what was meaningful to me, I was sharing about authentic relating. Right. So I was telling him how meaningful it had been to me and why I had brought it to prisons. And and then just to hear him reflect back what it was like for him to hear me talk about my own passion, um, he just seemed so genuinely appreciative and... I can't remember exactly what he said, but as is the case with a lot of these, I remember the feeling I had right. sitting there with him. Just felt so, I had this sense of real connection and real open-heartedness and tenderness sitting across from this, this guy who's, you know, been incarcerated. Right. I, and that was something that I felt a lot. Uh, throughout the two days was a tenderness, like tenderness wow. in my heart. Wow. Yeah. So did you get a sense when you were leaving or at, at points throughout the, the couple days of what the experience was like for them? I mean, mm -hmm. you were just describing that a little bit, but did anyone yeah. explicitly say one thing or another of the inmates, I mean? Yeah, yeah. So one thing that comes to mind right away is um, – so there's no hugging. There's no physical contact. Right. That was the rule. But one of the guys made a point of hugging us all sort of surreptitiously before leaving. And he, I can't remember what he said, but it, uh, I was just really touched by that. I don't think he would have pretended to hug us for some ulterior motive. Right. Like, it seemed like he really, he really felt whatever. Some connection. Some connection that he wanted to hug us before leaving. Right. And this was a guy that was a gang member who would, he was in there for drug dealing. And, yeah, I just remember how um, how intimidated I was by him at the beginning. Tattoos and yeah. all sorts of shit probably. Yeah, just yeah. Just like the, the, the picture of, like, in a movie of, like, a tough guy. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but really, like, getting to know him, I was, 
I was quite intimidated. And getting to know him over the two days, I felt such sweetness from him. Like, he was just such a sweet guy. And it's so, so interesting because, I mean, we all do that every day of our lives. You make these assumptions about people, and it's really not who they are. And and how many times you have to learn that lesson. But I, yeah, it's great to, to actually be shown in no uncertain terms. Yeah. Yeah. And to answer your question again, there's another guy who said explicitly, the same guy that I had been partnered with said at the end, I think this is essential for every inmate, that every prisoner in the U.S. should have access to this. I think it's like transformational. And he wanted to bring it. A few guys said this, that they wanted to, when they got out, wanted to somehow bring that to other marginalized groups and continue to be part of the community. Wow. Well, what better feedback could you get? Like any misgivings or uh, like hesitation you might have had going in, like all the problems I was talking mm-hmm. about potentially before mm-hmm. you you shared that was like, that must have just evaporated when you hear something like that, right? Yes. Super gratifying to hear that. I want to say though, just to, to be nuanced about it, because I'm an academic and I like nuance both because I'm an academic and because you're not, a because I'm me. Yeah, because I'm a Savo. I don't I don't think that everybody had the same. So those were a lot of guys had that kind of uh, reaction. Not all of them did, though. All, like some of them were more quiet or seemed less into it. So I can see that. Uh, yeah. right? Everyone's got different experience, right? It's not yeah. going to work for everyone. Yeah. So I I don't say that to say that, therefore, it's not worth it. Therefore, we should stop doing it. I think if anybody gets anything out of it, that's a reason to continue to do it. Mm-hmm. But I just want to be, you know, honest and authentic about it and say that not everybody was over the moon about it, although some of them were over the moon about it. But, I mean, based on hearing that feedback and knowing what I know, which is that you're going to bring it to Ontario, this kind of s- similar undertaking like where you bring authentic relating to prisons Mm -hmm. you must have got enough positive feedback that you feel like it's worthwhile Mm -hmm. and it's going to be good for everyone involved so so you're doing that so the four of us from toronto who are part of authentic relating toronto who were all there are part of a team who's well we are the team who is trying to bring this work to ontario we've been doing that since we were there in july right um but have had a lot of trouble getting any attention from the administration in correctional facilities here. It seems to be a lot harder than it is in the States for some reason. I think it's harder to get anyone to do anything (laughs) in Canada. I found that in the music business, totally. You could could get a super high-powered music business lawyer on the phone cold calling in the U.S. You couldn't do that in Canada. When huh. I was doing that in the 90s. Anyway, that's an, you know, an aside, but it, maybe it's a similar mindset. People in the U.S., it just seems like they're, they're open. They'll, they'll talk to anyone for a second. Uh-huh. That's so interesting. I wonder if that's something about the entrepreneurial spirit there in the States. I think it is. The that's kind of where I was going with it. Yeah. 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 So they said that they, they were basically cold calling prisons from the beginning when they started. And they only, in Colorado, I mean. So this original organization sure. in Colorado started about a year and a half ago or two years ago, and they were just cold calling prisons, and they're now in, I think, five prisons across the state and had recently had a meeting with the top of the Department of Corrections. So, like, they're really getting somewhere. And we have talked to, I don't know, 50 different places here in Ontario and nothing so far. So, so yeah, there's something going on. So— Good on you for bringing – I mean, it sounds like such a positive thing for the world, just the framework and, you know, spreading it that way. But doing this kind of specific thing with prisons really seems like it could be transformational. Thanks. So yeah, we're, I'm proud of you, sis. Thanks, Rob. Yeah, we're, um, we're not giving up yet. And also just I'll quickly mention that I'm – like you alluded to before, I'm bringing this into my academic work. So I'm, I have uh, applied for a grant to do some research on the outcomes of this. And so hopefully through that grant, we might have a little bit more leverage. If I say I have right. this research grant. And these are the outcomes when yeah. you take on a project like this. Yeah, and this they is might the be, feedback. Right. They might be more open to letting us come wow. in. And just to be clear, we're coming in as volunteers. So we're not saying pay us money to do this. We're saying, will you let us 
volunteer to offer this to some of your incarcerated people. And just because it's good for the world. Yeah. Why are you doing it? Why is bringing authentic relating to prisons important to you? Hmm. I really like that question. Um, it feels, first of all, just for selfish reasons, it feels just so meaningful to me, like some... Just what you get out of it when you're doing it. To feel like what I'm offering can make a difference in someone's life, could potentially make a difference in someone's life, could potentially, even for a moment, have someone who might who might have been really beaten down by life or really unfairly treated or really had their ass kicked by life, to have them um, just feel seen or feel heard or feel like their story is important to someone, to me, that's extremely meaningful. You know, as an academic, sometimes I feel like my students are getting something out of my classes, and sometimes I feel like, well, how important is this to their life overall? Right. So I try in my classes to make things important to people overall, but this feels like so much more immediately impactful potentially for other people. Right. Um, so that's for me. For them, I hope, I hope that 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 experience can be a bridge to something, something good in their life. I yeah. hope. I, I and hope. based on some of the feedback that you shared earlier, it sounds like it was and it is. And it may continue to be like if some of these guys do what they say they're going to do, mm-hmm. like continue to bring it. Like, wouldn't that be the ultimate to have inmates, former inmates, take on the project mm-hmm. and run with it, right? Yeah. And then that's one of the things in the works is to have men and women who were previously part of a workshop to actually, when they get out, to be part of leading a workshop. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah and that would certainly address, like, the the earlier concerns yeah. I had is, like, outsiders coming in. Well, if, if you've yeah. been there, that changes everything. Yeah. Yeah, wow. Well, that's amazing. I'm so proud of you for, I mean, if I can say that. I mean, as your brother, that's allowed, right? But I mean, we're, we're authentically relating now, so I can say whatever I want. That's, yeah. that's my experience. I'm owning it. <laughs> Um, yeah, I really am. It's such a meaningful thing. It seems like such a positive thing to to put out in the world and to put your weight behind. Thanks. Yeah. I want to say one more thing, too, that the psychology research, you know, before I was saying I hope that this makes a difference, but there is research to suggest that this can make a difference. In other words, some of the um, research on addictions and incarceration make links between trauma and lack of intimacy and connection in people's lives. Right, right. And so, like we were talking about earlier, authentic relating is so good at creating context for development of connection and intimacy. And so I think the research really suggests, the psychological research really suggests that that it can make a difference. Nobody has studied it yet, but I'm part of you know, the first wave of academics who's trying to study, to actually study it and have research to back it up, that it actually will make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many different blooms forming from this, this initial seed. That's fantastic. So if someone wants to get involved with like someone listening to this, wants to get a hold of you to either contribute or to give you some lead for a prison in Ontario or whatever it is, where can they reach you for that? Hmm. That's a good question. So my email address, you could contact me at my work address, which is Michelle with two L's dot Sabo, S-Z-A-V-O, at SheridanCollege.ca. So if people want to email me directly, I'm happy to hear from them. Also, to find out more about authentic relating, you can just Google authentic relating. But if you're in Toronto, you can Google authentic relating Toronto and find out more about the events. Events are listed mainly under meetup.com. You can find authentic relating Toronto there and get more information about what it is and the events that are going on. Fantastic. 
That was so great. I feel like we should start a series, Dr. Sabo on the podcast, <laughs> you know, monthly or so. Okay, I'm overstepping my boundaries. <laughs> Whenever you feel like it, I would love to do this kind of thing again. We'll see, we'll see what happens. But thank you so much for making the time today, Michelle. Thanks, Rob. It was, I feel really delighted and uh, super excited to share this work with you and with others. Thanks for having me. All right. What do you think of that? Man, I'm so proud of my sister. She's so fantastic. I just can't say enough about her and about how much I learn from her. She gives me so much insight into so many different things, and I, I just can't thank her enough. Oh, okay, I got to get a hold of myself here. Okay, here's something important that I want you all to know about, and this is the And Sometimes Why pod email address. So I want to hear from you about some of the ideas we've been discussing on this episode or any of the other episodes. Did anything hit you? Were any of these ideas something that you wanted to weigh in on? If so, drop me an email at andsometimeswhypod at gmail.com. All one word, why is a word, not a letter. And maybe I'll read some on the air or we'll discuss some ideas that uh, need discussing. So please make sure you subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps to get the word out. And thank you for listening. Thanks for giving a shit. Be good to each other out in the world. And see you back here every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And sometimes why is brought to you by Rob Sabo. That's me. Conversations are edited by Todd Donald. Because there's no way in hell I could do it. I'm so grateful to Todd.